Ezekiel chapter 17, verses 1 through 24. We're going to cover the whole chapter tonight. Lord willing. And the snow don't come. I don't say creek don't rise anymore. Now it's snow. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. Say, thus says the Lord God. A great eagle with great wings and long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors, came to Lebanon and took the top of the cedar. He broke off the topmost of its young twigs and carried it to a land of trade and set it in a city of merchants. Then he took the seed of the land and planted it in fertile soil. He placed it beside abundant waters. He set it like a willow twig, and it sprouted and became a low-spreading vine, and its branches turned toward him, and its roots remained where it stood. So it became a vine and produced branches and put out boughs. And there was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage. And behold, this vine bent its roots toward him and shot forth its branches toward him from the bed where it was planted, that he might water it. It had been planted on good soil by abundant waters, that it might produce branches and bear fruit and become a noble vine. Say, thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots and cut it off its fruit? so that it withers, so that all its fre fle sorry, fresh sprouting leaves wither. It will not take a strong arm or many people to pull it from its roots. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it, wither away and on the bed where it sprouted? Then the word of the Lord came to me, Say now to the rebellious house, Do you not know what these things mean? Tell them, Behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and took her king and her princes and brought them to, a, to Babylon. And he took one of the royal offspring and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath, the chief men of the land he had taken away, that the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up and keep his covenant that it might stand. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt, that they might give him horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? As I live, declares the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised, and whose covenant with him he broke in Babylon, he shall die. Pharaoh, with his mighty army and great company, will not help him in war. When mounds are cast up and siege walls built to cut off many lives, he despised the oath in breaking the covenant. And behold, he gave his hand and did all these things. He shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely it is my oath that he despised and my covenant that he broke. I will return it upon his head, and I will spread my net over him, and he shall be taken in my snare. And I will bring him to Babylon and enter into judgment with him there for the treachery he has committed against me. And all the pick of his troops shall fall by the sword, and the survivors shall be scattered to every wind. And you shall know that I am the Lord I have spoken. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On that mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, every bird of every, sorry, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make, the high, make high the low tree. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Now there's a lot here, but actually as we start to get into it, you're going to see it all become a whole lot more clear. Let's deal though with the first thing in the beginning of chapter 17. Ezekiel is told to tell the people of Israel a riddle. Now another word for this could be a parable. Jump over to Ezekiel chapter 20 and look at verses 44 and 45. Ezekiel 20 verses, sorry, 45 through 49. Ezekiel 20, verse 45. It says, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward the south land, preach against the south, and prophesy against the forest land in the Negeb. Say to the forest of the Negeb, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will kindle a fire in you, and it shall devour every green tree in you, and every dry tree. The blazing flame shall not be quenched, and all the faces from the south to north shall be scorched by it. All flesh shall see that I, the Lord, have kindled it. It shall not be quenched. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, they are saying of me, Is he not a maker of parables? So in chapter 17, he's told by God, Tell them a riddle or tell them a parable. And then he says, God, I mean, you tell me to tell them another parable. And they, that's all they say is all he does is speak in parables. So what I want to do tonight, to, before we get into breaking down this parable, this riddle that God told Ezekiel to tell, I want to deal with the, that whole topic. Why does God use parables? 
There's a couple of answers, actually more than one, but I'm going to pull a couple of them out from the Scriptures tonight. The first one is this. The Scripture said He would. Plain and simple, the first reason why God speaks in parables is because the Scripture said He would. Go to Psalm 78. Psalm 78, verses 1 through 4. It says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. So here he says that God says, I'm going to open my mouth in a parable. Go over to Matthew chapter 13. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 13, verses 34 and 35. Matthew 13, verse 34 and 35. It says, All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, He said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. By the way, where are they quoting from there? Psalm 78, where I just read to you. It's the passage we just read. That's where they're quoting from. All right. So the first reason why does God use parables? Because the scripture said he would. Now, at the same time, though, there's another reason. Secondly, speaking in parables separates those who truly want to learn from God from those who only want to see things with their own eyes and with their own understanding. I'm going to give you the short answer. I'm going to show you from Scripture what I'm talking about. The Bible teaches that the reason why Jesus talks in parables and why the Scripture, a lot of times God speaks in parables, is because He's designed it that if you're willing to humble yourself and say, I don't fully understand, but I want to understand, God will then give insight. But if you want to make your decisions or get your understanding from just what you see, God won't speak in that way. He speaks in parables. He speaks in riddles so that you don't understand. And if you don't understand, you got a choice. What are your two choices? Very good, Jeremy. Go to God or don't go to God. That's it. You, when he speaks in a riddle or a parable, your choices are... I either humble myself and say, I don't understand. Would you please instruct me? Or you'd say, I don't get it. It's stupid. It's dumb. I'm not going to go there. Look at what the scripture says. Go to Matthew chapter 10, 13, verse 10. It says, Then the disciples came to him and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For, do you, for to the one who has... More will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You indeed will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their, e with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Now, I got to be honest with you, folks. That passage right there for years, I didn't fully understand, gave me a little bit of a bellyache. Because if you read it on a quick surface reading, it sounds like Jesus is saying, the reason I talk in parables is because there's only certain people I want to understand it and others that I don't. Doesn't it kind of read like that? It's given to you, but it's not given to them. And if they were able to understand it, then I would heal them. And I don't want to do that. Isn't that kind of how it reads? But as I dove into this, knowing this can't be what the Scripture says, because that doesn't match up with the Scriptures, because God wants all to come to a knowledge of the truth. What is he saying here? And I started to realize a little bit deeper as you put the whole of Scripture together. Go back to verse 15. Verse 15 of chapter 13. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes, who closed their eyes? They have. What he's saying was is this. They have been preached to and preached to and preached to for the years. And they chose not to listen. They became dull of hearing. They became hard in their hearts and they closed their eyes. And now I come on the scene and I speak in riddles. I speak in parables. Why? Because those who are humble enough to say, 
I don't understand, but I want to understand. Would you please help me see it? Those are the ones that it's given to. For those who say, eh, I don't believe it, it's not for them. Was it for them? Yes. But they chose to reject it. It's the same thing you see with that whole story of, of, uh, of Pharaoh when the nation of Israel is being taken out of Egypt. Ultimately, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But if you go back, and I've walked you through this before, Pharaoh hardened his own heart all the way until the end. And then God said, not going not gonna to let you open it anymore. In the same way, he says, I'm speaking in riddles so that the people will humble themselves and say, I need you to teach me. That's why I've done that. And it's proven out, by the way. Go to Matthew chapter 13. Look at verse 36. Right after it says that he was going to speak to them in parables, look at verse 36. Then he left the crowds and he went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds and the weed. Do you see it? Weeds of the field. See, people say, well, the reason he speaks in parables is those who have the ability to understand it will understand it. And those who don't have the ability. No, no, that's not how it works. He had just said that I speak in parables. This has been given to you. But they came and they said, we don't understand. But would you teach us what this means? Do you see it? Who's it given to? The humble. God's word is out there. His truth is out there. He wants the world to see it, but he wants you to come to him for understanding. Don't, you're not going to ever get there on your own. Go to chapter 13, look at verse 18. He just finished telling the parable of the sower earlier in the chapter. In verse 18, Jesus says, Hear then the parable of the sower. In other words, I gave you the parable. Pretty sure you don't understand what I'd said, but let me teach it to you. So I want to challenge you. As you study the scriptures for yourself, keep a humble heart. Keep a sensitive spirit to the, to the Lord and say, Lord, you give us understanding. The only thing that's understood is given by your spirit. I want you to show me. I don't understand, but I believe you'll tell me. Oh, and believe me, he wants to respond to those who believe and don't doubt. So if you ask him for insight and understanding and you listen and you don't get any, what are you to do? Wait, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. That's in the, in the context there where it says ask and seek and, and knock. That's in the keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Keep an attitude that says you will show me. And if you choose not to tell me today, you have a reason. And I'm good with that. But I'm waiting for an answer from you. For those who think they can figure it out on their own, I can get to heaven by myself. I can take care of all this stuff. Guess what? They're never going to get it. Why? Because they can't? No, because they aren't willing to do it the only way he's designed it to be received, which is through humility, repentance, and faith. Open my eyes that I may see. Remember that hymn? Glimpses of truth thou hast for me. Open my ears. Illumine me. Spirit divine. When you go read the Bible, don't just read the Bible. Spend some time meditating on it. Let, just take a small passage and ask God to open your eyes. I had never, in all these years, I had never seen that part of the verse. Their eyes, they have closed. Jumped off the page at me as I meditated on this passage saying, there's something here that I'm missing. It's reading like I know it's not supposed to read. Lord, what am I missing? And then all of a sudden, it opened up. I, it's a quote from somebody. It's an anonymous quote, but they said this. Reading the Bible without meditating on it is like eating without swallowing. Is eating without swallowing going to do you any good? No. In the same way, just reading the Bible without taking time to meditate on it. Lord, speak to my heart. Put it in. That's when you start to get understanding. So, Ezekiel is now told, tell the people a riddle. By the way, why was Ezekiel told to tell these people a riddle? Exactly. So they would humble themselves and say, we don't understand, but we want to know, God, would you give us understanding? Go ahead, Zach. The pearls before swine. Uh-huh. Isn't that to protect the messenger? Well, when Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine, what he was saying was, don't spend all your time trying to get someone to get it. 
You know what I'm saying? If they don't understand, move on. Is that what he told them when he sent them out two by two? Let your peace go out. If it's received, stay there. If not, move on. Part of what he was saying was, don't waste all your time trying to get people that aren't willing to get it, not, who aren't going to get it. You're right. It's a great, it's tied in there. Definitely. All right. Let's start to take a look then to see what God will show us from this parable about the eagle, two eagles and the vine. In chapter 17, verses 1 through 4, let me read this section again to you. And starting in verse 2, Son of man, propound a riddle and speak to the parable to the house of Israel. Say, thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings and long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors, came to Lebanon and, and took the top of the cedar. He broke off the topmost of its young twigs and carried it to a land of trade and set it in a city of merchandise. Now, the first eagle that came and plucked off the top of the branch of the cedar is the king of, of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Now you say, Jim, where did you get that from? And I want to stop and say, if that was your question, great question. I hope as you sat there and said, well, where did he get that? I hope you ask that all the time because there's a lot of people that have turned the Bible into symbolic language and this represents this and this represents that and all this kind of stuff. The problem is they're making up what they think it represents. If the Bible doesn't say what it represents, then don't let someone tell you what they think it represents. I believe whenever the Bible uses symbolic language, it tells you what it symbolizes. And in the same way, the reason I can tell you that the first eagle is the king of Nebuchadnezzar is because the Bible says it's Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Let me just tell you what he does, and then I'll show you from the scriptures. The first eagle that came and plucked off the top of the branches of the cedar is King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and the cedar is Judah. He came and he took the king of Judah, which was Jehoiachin, and some of the leading men of the captivity, uh, sorry, off to captivity in Babylon. You remember how we talked about that a while back? He, in, in 597, he took King Jehoiachin and some of the leading men, and he took it into captivity in Babylon. Of course, Ezekiel went at that time. He took him to a land of merchants. And by the way, back in chapter 16, the scripture actually describes the city of Babylon is, or the area of Babylon as a land of merchants. Now, we don't get to fill in what the eagle or the branches mean. Scripture tells us, chapter 17, look at verses 11 and 12. Then the word of the Lord came to me, say now to the rebellious house, do you not know what these things mean? And the good answer is no. But you know, and you'll show me. Tell them, behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and took her king and her princes and brought them to to him to Babylon. The eagle came, took the top of the branches of the cedar, carried it off to a land of merchants. Who is the, the, the eagle? It's the king of Babylon. And who is the top of the branches? King Jehoiachin and its leading men. And they were taken off. What's the cedar? The cedar is Judah. Go to 2 Kings chapter 24. We'll see a little bit more. 2 Kings 24 verses 8 through 17. Second Kings 24, verses 8 through 17. It says, Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother name, mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of El-Nathan of Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and all the treasures of the king's house. And he cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had made, as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths, None remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000 of the craftsmen and metal workers, 1,000 of all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place, and he changed his name to Zedekiah. That's important. Keep that in mind because you're going to see that come up in our parable. All right, go back to Ezekiel chapter 17. Look at verses 5 and 6. Ezekiel chapter 17, verses 5 and 6. Then he, this is the the, the eagle, which is King, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, took the seed of the land and planted it in fertile soil 
He placed it beside abundant waters. He set it like a willow twig, twig, and it sprouted and became a low-spreading vine, and its branches turned toward him, and its roots remained where it stood. So it became a vine and produced branches and put out boughs. All right? So here we see Nebuchadnezzar left the people in, some people in Judah, and he placed Zedekiah as king, but they were to be subservient to him as a vassal state, and if they submitted to Nebuchadnezzar, they would survive. We see in the story that there was this eagle, came and he took the, took the top of the cedar, carried it off to Babylon. But he left some of the cedar there. And he actually treated it well. Put it by water, put it on fertile soil, and said, I want you to live here. And he said it like a willow twig, as we saw, and it sprouted and became a low-spreading vine, and its branches turned toward him. Who was its branches toward? toward? Nebuchadnezzar, the eagle. They were to turn to him. Now, at first glance, we would look at this and say, well, that's not a good thing. Why would the people of Israel ever turn to the king of Babylon for their provision and their protection and all? Listen closely. Because God wanted them to. You say, that doesn't make any sense. Well, let me take a little time to explain to you what I mean. Go to verses 13 and 14 of chapter 17. Chapter 17, verses 13 and 14 says, And he took one of the royal offspring and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath, the chief men of the land he had taken away, and the kingdom, that the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up and keep his covenant that it might stand. We'll come to that covenant in a little bit. So we saw from 2 Kings 24 and from here that Nebuchadnezzar came, took the king and some of the leading men off to Babylon. He left some people, though, in the land, and he took care of it, treated it well, put it in good soil by abundant waters, and he took one of the people there and left them there as king. But that they would be humble and depend on him. By the way, who was the one he left in charge? Zedekiah. Like I said, at first glance, we want to see this as a bad thing, but it's what God wanted them to do. Remember, God was disciplining them for turning to the gods of the other nations. So he was letting them live under the power of those nations if that's what they wanted. In other words, God has been saying to them, you don't want to worship those gods. I'm the only God. After a while, God said, you want to? I'll tell you what, I'll let you get the full experience. You want to worship their gods? Well, that you live like them. Now, instead of being under my protection and provision, you're under theirs. And he took a lot of them into captivity to go live there in their land. He left some in the land, and he said, if you will just humble yourself and submit to King Nebuchadnezzar, you'll prosper. God was saying, you want to live like that? Go ahead. He was using it to teach them, hopefully in time, they would all of a sudden realize, we don't like this. You ever heard the stories about the parents who catch their kids smoking or smoking a cigar? And sometimes they, you ever heard the stories about they say, you want to smoke? Finish the pack or go sit in the closet and do all. What was the purpose? You want to do it? Go get the full experience. And then you, when you get sick, then maybe you won't want to do it as much. God was doing the same thing with the nation of Israel. Go to 2 Kings 24. Look at verses 17 through 20. Second Kings chapter 24, verses 17 through 20. And the king of Babylon made Mattaniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, the king in his place, and he changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Now, again, first reading we would say, well, good for him. Not good for him. Go to Jeremiah chapter 38 and you'll see why. Jeremiah chapter 38. Remember, Jeremiah and, and uh, Ezekiel are both prophesying around the same time. Jeremiah began before Ezekiel did. Ezekiel began 
Esther, he had been taken captive during that time after 597. But while Ezekiel is prophesying to the captives in Babylon, Jeremiah is prophesying still to the people left in Jerusalem. And in Jeremiah 38, listen to verses 40, 14 through 18. King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, 38, 14. King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah the prophet and received him at the third entrance of the temple of the Lord. The king said to Jeremiah, I will ask you a question. Hide nothing from me. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, If I tell you, will you not surely put me to death? And if I give you counsel, will you not listen to me? Sorry, you will not listen to me. Then the king Zedekiah swore secretly to Jeremiah, As the Lord lives, who made our souls, I will not put you to death or deliver you into the hand of these men who seek your life. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, If you will surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then your life shall be spared. And this city shall not be burned with fire, and you and your house shall live. But if you do not surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then this city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans, and they shall burn it with fire, and you shall not escape from their hand. What was God's instructions to Zedekiah through the prophet while he was in charge over the, what was left of Israel in Jerusalem? Submit, stay in submission to the king. Stay under his hand, and you'll, you'll be okay. I'm doing something. Remember how Jeremiah had already written in chapter 29 to the captives in Babylon. You're going to be there for a while, so plant some crops, build some houses, let your kids marry. But are we going to be here forever? No, God says he's going to bring you out after a certain time, but God's going to, when the discipline is over, he'll bring you out of it. Folks, a lot of times God puts us in a time of shaping and molding and teaching. And as I've told people over the years, it's like when God puts you on the operating table. Don't get off the operating table until the surgeon's done. Many of us, while we're in that time of God working on us and disciplining us and shaping and molding and teaching, we try to get off before he's done. And he said, I have a reason and a purpose. Submit yourself to it. Humble yourself to this king and you'll be okay. Well, if we go back to our parable, did the king that had been left in charge submit himself to the king of Babylon? And you say, I'm not sure. I'm not. Well, the, the parable tells us he doesn't. Instead of submitting to God's discipline under King Nebuchadnezzar, Zedekiah rebelled against Babylon and turned to the Egyptians for help by having them come against Babylon. Remember at the very end of that passage we read in 2 Kings 24, but he, Zedekiah rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar? Go back to Ezekiel chapter 17. Look at verses 7 and 8 and then verse 15. Ezekiel 17 verses 7 and 8. And there was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage. And behold, this vine that was supposed to be bending itself toward the first eagle, toward Nebuchadnezzar, this vine bent its roots toward this other eagle and shot forth its branches toward him from the bed where it was planted, that he might water it. And it had been planted on good soil by abundant waters, that it might produce branches and bear fruit and become a noble vine. Jump down to verse 15. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to where? To Egypt, that they might give him horses in a large army. Will he thrive? Can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? We'll come back to that in a little bit. If you go to Jeremiah chapter 37, look at verses 1 through 10. Jeremiah 37, verses 1 through 10. It says, Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made, uh, sorry, made king in the land of Judah, reigned instead of Kaniah, which is Jehoiachin, the son of Jehoiakim. But neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land listened to the words of the Lord that he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. King Zedekiah sent Jehoi Jehuchal, the son of Shelemiah, and Zephaniah the priest, the son of Messiah, to Jeremiah the prophet, saying, Please pray for us to the Lord our God. Now Jeremiah was still going in and out among the people, for he had not yet been put in prison. The army of Pharaoh had come out of Egypt, and when the Chaldeans who were besieging Jerusalem heard news about them, they withdrew from Jerusalem. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Thus you shall say to the king of Judah, who sent you to me to inquire of me, Behold, Pharaoh's army that came to help you is about to return to Egypt, to its own land. And the Chaldeans shall come back and fight against this city. They shall capture it and burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord, Do not deceive yourselves, saying, The Chaldeans will surely go away from us for they will not go away. 
For even if you should defeat the whole army of the Chaldeans who are fighting against you, and there remained only the, of them only wounded men, every man in his tent, they would rise up and burn this city with fire. What happened was Zedekiah, instead of submitting himself like God said to the first eagle and turning toward him like God was wanting him to because of the discipline he was putting him through, he turned to the king of Egypt, this other eagle, turned to him and spread his stuff divine toward him. And at a certain point, the Egyptians come to help. And in this situation, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, they actually go, oh, let's get out of here. And they ran. And so they start thinking, hey, we're going to be all right. Jeremiah comes and says, oh, just because the Babylonians took off, don't think that they're going to stay gone. Because the Egyptians are going to go back. And the Babylonians are going to come back. And this time, they're going to destroy you. So we see this all in this riddle. This riddle, keep in mind, while Ezekiel is telling them this parable, does anybody know what's going on in Jerusalem at that time? Everything he's saying. This is what's happening at that time. This is around 588 B.C. that he's giving them this riddle. What happens in 586? They get destroyed. The siege begins in 588, ultimately culminates two years later in 586 when the city's burned and they're all destroyed. This has all been going on. When he's telling them this parable, when he's telling them this riddle, they should have already understood if they're willing to humble themselves and understand that they were a part of that first group that had been taken into captivity with their king and their leading men. And at that time, while they were in captivity, what was happening in Jerusalem was Zedekiah was turning to Egypt and looking for help. And God says, tell them a little story. Tell them how it's going to end. And that's actually what happens next. Go to a, um, chapter 17. Look at verses 9 and 10. God asks a question. Chapter 17 of Ezekiel, verses 9 and 10. God asks a question. Say, to the, say, thus says the Lord God, will it thrive, meaning this vine that had been planted in the land? Will, it not, will he not pull up its roots, this is the first eagle, and cut off its fruit so that it withers, so that all its fresh sproutings, leaves, withers? It will not take a strong army or many people to pull it from its roots. By the way, why wouldn't it take much to destroy what's left in Jerusalem? Who was left? The poorest people of the land, the men of valor, the, the officials, the leading, the strong leadership, all was gone. Those people left were just the poor folks and this guy who had been put there as a vassal king. It's not going to be hard to do. That's why he even says, he looked, he says, even if the Babylonians go away, guess what? It only take a few guys who are sick and some of the guys that are hiding in their tents to defeat you. He says, Verse 10, Behold, this planet, will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it? Wither away on its bed where it was sprouted? Look at chapter 17. Look at verse 15 through 21. But they rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt, and they might give him horses and a large army. Here's the question again. Will he thrive? Can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? As I live, declares the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised and whose covenant with him he broke in Babylon, he shall die. Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company will not help him in war when mounds are cast up and siege walls built to cut off many lives. He despised the oath in breaking the covenant and behold, he gave his hand and did all these things. He shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely it is my oath that he despised and my covenant that he broke. I will return it upon his head. I will spread my net over him, and he shall be taken in my snare. And I will bring him to Babylon and enter into judgment with him there for the treachery he has committed against me. And all the pick of his troops shall fall by the sword, and the survivors shall be scattered to every wind, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. So God asked this question and says, will he, will he survive? Will this branches, this, this boughs that were left in the land who were taken care of by the king of Babylon, and then they rebelled against him, turning to another eagle. Will they survive? The answer is no. There's going to be a judgment because of this. We're not going to take the time to go and read it, because I've read it in previous parts of our study, but if you want to write it down and go look at it later on, chapter 25 of 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 25, verses 1 through 7, talk about this. 2 Chronicles 36, 11 through 21, talk about this. Jeremiah 52, 1 through 11, all talk about this, how ultimately... Because of this rebellion, 
Babylon, the king of Babylon came back and wiped them all out. What I want to do tonight, though, is go to the next section of that I just read and pull something out from here. And I want you to stick with me here because I know I've already given you a bunch and you get a little weary. I know for a fact, you've heard me say it before, the mind can only absorb what your butt can endure. I understand. So I'm just asking you, stick with me here because there's something here for us just in this next section. There's something here for us today. Don't miss what God says about Zedekiah in Ezekiel 17, verses 18 and 19. Go back and look at this, and don't miss this. This is something really powerful here. It says in verse 18, He, Zedekiah, despised the oath in breaking the covenant, and behold, he gave his hand and did all these things. He shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, As I live, surely it is my oath that he despised, and my covenant that he broke. He says, He's going to get judged because he made an oath. He gave his hand. And not only did he make an oath, and not only did he give his hand, it's my oath that he broke. Does anybody know what that oath is? What's the covenant that he broke? It's not what you think. This isn't talking about the law of Moses and the covenant of the Mosaic law. Go to 2 Chronicles 36. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, look at verse 13. Again, if you're willing to humble yourself and say, Lord, show me. Lord, I got some questions. Lord, give me some insight. What is going on here? And you take the time and the Spirit of God leads you in your study. You'll see things you would never seen before. Because the Bible does answer all these questions. In 2 Chronicles 36, look at verse 13. Actually, we'll just start in verse 11 to catch you up to speed. It says, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. And then it went on and talked about, look at what happened. We've already read about how Nebuchadnezzar made Zedekiah the king over Israel. But now we see something more. When Nebuchadnezzar made Zedekiah king over Israel. He made Zedekiah swear by the name of his God that he would submit himself to the Babylonian king. And so Zedekiah says, I swear by my God. We already saw he knows how to do this. When he's talking to Jeremiah, he says, as the Lord lives by the name of our God, I won't put you to death if you tell me the truth. But when he met with Babylon, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar put him in charge, he said, Swear to me by your God that you will submit yourself to me. And he gave his hand. And God says, he broke the covenant that he had made. And it wasn't his covenant. It was my covenant. Because he brought me into it. I want to talk to you tonight about taking the Lord's name in vain. And for years, we have thought that that meant cussing, saying Jesus' name as a swear word, or GD. Now, yes, in a sense, that's using God's name in vain, but that's not what the Bible means when it says, thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. Go with me back to Exodus chapter 20. And look at verse 7. Exodus chapter 20, look at verse 7. It's one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now you say, okay, what does that mean? Well, the Bible tells us, jump over to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 11 and 12. In the laws that were given in the book of Leviticus, it says you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. Did you catch that? Taking God's name in vain is when you say, by God, I'll do it. 
and you don't do it. That's why the book tells us, that Jesus says, look, don't swear by the temple or by the gold on the temple because you don't really have a whole lot of control. And most of the time when you say you do stuff, you won't. Why don't you just let your yes be yes and your no be no? The book of James, chapter 5, verse 12, says the same thing. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than that gets us in trouble. But I want to also tell you something. When you, through faith, become a child of God, whose name do you take? I mean, my kids are all here tonight, except AJ, who's at a prayer meeting for a friend of his who's going off on a mission trip. But my girls are here. When they were born, and when they came into our family, what became their name? Johnson. And now wherever they go and whatever they do, they are a reflection on Becky and I. Just as much as I'm a reflection on my parents, whose name I took. And I want to challenge you folks. God takes it seriously when we don't do what we're going to say we're going to do. Because we're taking his name in vain. And Zedekiah said, I swear by God, my, the, my God who lives, I will submit myself to you. And he didn't. And God said, he not only broke a covenant that he made and stuck his hand out, he broke my covenant because he involved me. And I don't know if you realize it or not, but when you are in airports in Detroit and there's a blizzard, you walk around in the name of the Lord. And you represent your father in all that you do. And that's one of the things that over the years has helped me mostly. I'm not perfect, but stay submitted to my father is. People know who Jim Johnson is. And if I act in a certain way, the name of the Lord will be embarrassed and will be shamed if I sin. Those of us who live on an island over here, we know. <laughs> everybody knows everybody. Folks, let me just challenge you. See how serious God takes it when we, in his name, don't do what we say we're going to do? Well, I didn't say I would do it by God. No, you did if you're a child of God. You've taken his name. You've done it. So let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be known for a person who keeps, as a person who keeps their word. Now, we're going to close tonight. In the time that we have left, we have 15 minutes. We got to 8.05 because I started late. Go back to Ezekiel 17, and we'll get to the fun closing part of this parable, this riddle. Ezekiel 17, verses 22 through 24. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I'm going to set it apart. I'm going to break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one. And I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches. Birds of every sort will nest and all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree. I make, the high, I make high the low tree. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. At the end of this parable, after saying there was this big eagle full of plumage, and he took part of the cedar, which was Judah, and carried it off to Babylon. And he left some there, and he planted it and took care of it, and it was supposed to turn toward him. But then that branch, those branches turned toward another eagle, which was Egypt. And then because of that, is that going to survive? Is it going to thrive? No, the first eagle is going to come and rip it up and burn it. And he talks about what, he, what Zedekiah did. And then he says at the end, though, but I, thus says the Lord God, I'm going to take one of the branches from Judah. I'm going to set it aside. And one day I'm going to plant it on a high mountain. And from that point on, every tree in the whole world will know. Everybody will know that I am the Lord. Anybody want to take a wild guess of who that branch is that Jesus, that, sorry, that the scripture talks is he's going to do? Jesus. You know how we know? Because we're not guessing the symbolism. The scripture tells us. Let me show you just a few of the places. Go to Isaiah chapter 4. Isaiah chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Remember, Isaiah had already written and spoken this before what we just read in Ezekiel's writings. 
Isaiah chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and the honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. And it says at the beginning, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. Who's this branch? Well, it's Jesus. Go to Isaiah chapter 11. We'll get a little more information about who this branch is. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, or a branch from the stump of Jesse, and, it's from, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. By the way, that's the seven spirits of God that we see in Revelation. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Go to Jeremiah 23, verses 1 through 8. Jeremiah 23, verse 1. Woe to the shepherds. Who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous what? Branch. And he shall reign as a king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord uh, is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. Go to Jeremiah 33. Look at verses 14 through 16. Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 16. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land, in those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, or the branch will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. So what do we know from the passages we just read about this branch? It's going to come from where? Judah and from David. This branch is going to be called what? The Lord is our righteousness. The Spirit of the Lord is going to rest on him. The seven spirits of the Lord are going to rest on him. He's not going to decide disputes by what his eyes see or what his ears hear, but with righteousness he'll judge all the people of the earth. Where is this branch going to be planted? In Jerusalem. Actually, as the prophecy of the, the riddle said in uh, the parable in Ezekiel 17 said, on a high and lofty mountain in Jerusalem. By the way, when's that going to happen? Remember at the end of the tribulation period, there's that great earthquake that levels the whole earth and all the cities are destroyed. And Jerusalem at that time will be split into three parts. The centermost part will rise up above everything else. The northern and southern parts are going to go flat. And Jerusalem, the city where the, the temple is going to be and all that's going to be raised up. He's going to set them on a high mountain. And from that point forward, everyone will know all who's left alive at the end. Because remember, there's not very many people left at that time. As he begins the millennial kingdom, everyone will know that he is the Lord. God says, even though this is all going on, I've made a promise, and I have a plan, and I'm going to fulfill it. 
I'm going to act on it. And then a certain day at a certain time. So, does anybody know when that's going to happen? Hopefully soon. But don't miss this. Go with me to Acts chapter 17. This isn't in my notes, but this is something I think God just kind of brought to my mind to, to close with. Start in verse 24, Acts chapter 17, verse 24. It's talking to the people there in Athens who had an altar to an unknown God in case they missed one. And they said, the God who made the world and everything, Paul says, who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He did this so that they would seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He's actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being. As some of even your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Behold, then, God's offspring, being, sorry, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Remember how we read how this person's going to judge the world with righteousness? Now we know who it is clearly now, don't we? wasn't just someone who's coming from Judah, someone who's coming from David. The Bible says exactly who it is. Who is it? It's Jesus, because he's the one that God raised from the dead. Oh, don't miss this. The day has already been fixed when she's going to judge the world. It's not waiting on anything. It's already been set. Do you realize that if we get up tomorrow and the rapture hasn't happened yet, and the timetable for the end of the last seven-year period, it's all to come. The confirming of the covenant, the tribulation period, the Antichrist stepping in the temple, all that stuff. You know, if it hasn't happened tomorrow, it's still a day closer than it was today. And that day's already set. We're heading to that point. Was the church taught to look for the Antichrist? No, the Jews were told to watch for the Antichrist. The church was told to wait and to look for Jesus. Further evidence of the fact the church is going to be taken away before all that stuff happens. The Jews were told, watch for the Antichrist, step into the temple. But the church was told to wait for Jesus and to look for our Savior who's coming from heaven. Folks, it's getting close. It's getting real close. You don't have to say Jesus Christ. He is the Christ. His name is Jesus. He's God. The neat thing is, is we don't have a God that says, you didn't say the words right. We have a God who loves us. He loves us. Folks, I love you. Thanks for coming. We'll see you in two weeks.